Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. At your right hand stood the queen, investor of gold. Hear, O daughter, and see, and incline your ear. The rich among the people shall entreat your favor, and the king shall greatly desire your beauty, for he is your Lord, and you shall worship him. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 91 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have some interesting questions from our listening audience from last week's episode. I think they're worth calling out before we dig into chapter 3 today. One of the questions was about Elimelech and whether he was betraying the covenant by moving to Moab and then allowing his sons to marry foreign women. Because, you know, with a famine occurring in the land. We have to assume the judgment of the Lord. By going to Moab, he's moving away from the judgment of the Lord, avoiding the judgment of the Lord. This is an unresolved tension from our last session, and it boils down to, do we understand it in an Ezekielian context, or do we understand it, for example, against the backdrop of Hosea and the minor prophets? I think in Ezekiel, the movement of God is initiated by God himself. In Hosea, the problem is that when the wife no longer gets what she wants from this God, she goes to another God. And the God is always the God of another land. She goes after these gods in order to get grain. Oh, but now they're not providing enough grain. I'll go back to my first husband. And it's harlotry. I think the point is that in the end, we're opting to read this in context of Hosea. And it's not a multiple choice option. I think we're looking at the actual technical imagery in the story Mm -hmm. and realizing that this is a negative metaphor. And one of the problems about allowing your children to marry foreign wives, I mean, this is warned against in the Torah, is because the foreign wives will force them or convince them to betray God and to become unfaithful to their God. The irony is that whereas Elimelech and the children died, so maybe it could be cursed. I mean, the fact that Naomi comes back and says she's Mara because she's bitter, you know, there is some curse there. But the irony is that in this whole entire story, the Moabite is the one that's most faithful. So it undermines even the Torah itself that says, don't go marrying Moabites because they're going to make you unfaithful. Actually, these Moabites are more faithful than the Israelites they married. It doesn't undermine the Torah. That's not how I would phrase it. It demonstrates on the one hand that Elimelech cannot keep the Torah. And even though he doesn't keep the Torah, even though he leaves the land, and even though his sons shouldn't marry foreigners, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned him. And it doesn't mean that the Judahite is better than the Moabite. I think this book is wonderful in the way that it sets up the tension between the good of the outsider 
and the tepidness of the insider. So the second question, can Boaz be seen as a clever opportunist? I would come down very strongly in the negative category here. There's no evidence in the text whatsoever that Boaz is an opportunist. So what Boaz does is he sees that there is this unattached woman who has the right to some property. And as we'll see in this chapter, you know, there's discussions about marrying her and he would benefit from marrying her. So there is a case that one could make that he has his eye on her property or something. But the thing that comes out to me when I read the text is the way that he every step of the way acts correctly. For example, the fact that Boaz has to make sure that she's protected. Why is this the case? On the one hand, you could say maybe there's anger towards the foreigner and he wants to claim what she has. The other side would be that she's an unattached woman and therefore she's just anyone's for the taking. The discussion of the property that she has is not primary in this discussion, but What's really primary to me is that Boaz at every turn, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about chapter three, really does the right thing. I think that's clear. And I think when someone is following Torah, we're not really in a position to judge their intention unless the text judges their intention for us. Judging his intentions when his actions are all correct, my take is that we would judge him for what he does. And what he does is precisely according to Torah, he takes care of the widow and the orphan. If he has the wrong reasons for taking care of the widow and the orphan. It's immaterial. You're judged by the outcome of your actions. You're judged by whether you follow the commandment and whether or not it bears fruit. So if you have rotten intentions, but you do the right thing and it produces a good outcome, that probably is difficult for Sunday school teachers, ethicists, philosophers, and theologians. But for God, it's just fine. Man is blind in this regard. You can't see a person's intentions or judge a person's intentions. You can only look at the outcome. And ultimately, that's why God is the only judge, because he's the only one who can really see the ultimate outcome of everything. Anyways, great questions especially this point about Elimelech. that was really helpful feedback, and we all learn from the text as we work through this yeah, material. Yeah, I'm really thankful for the listener feedback. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now, is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So she's telling her daughter, it's time to look your best. And let me give you some pointers here on how to court this man. Naomi here has a plan for her daughter-in-law to get married, but also this notion of Gaal that we talked about in last week's episode, which is being a relative and being a redeemer, meaning the one who can take possession of the inheritance. By marrying this man, the inheritance stays within the family and it all will be good with both Naomi and with Ruth if this marriage were to happen. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go over and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. So this is a pretty provocative verse. Find out where he goes to bed, hop into bed with him and uncover presumably his genitals. People have argued that feet are a euphemism for genitals. That certainly seems to work very clearly with this text. But whether we're talking about feet 
or genitals. We're talking about sex here in verse 4. When she's looking her best and he's had something to drink and she's crawling into bed with him, whether it's feet or genitals, it's pretty much going to end up in the same place. And it's almost a little bit snarky. So you get into bed with a man looking your best and you uncover him. And then he'll tell you what to do. <laughs> Let what happens happen. Right. It's kind of like when parents who really can't deal with speaking plainly with their children about sexuality just say, uh, well, you'll know what to do when the time comes. <laughs> she said to her, all that you say I will do. So she's being obedient here, which is characteristic of Ruth. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry. So to make things more interesting, not only is a well-dressed, presumably beautiful girl going to enter into his bed and expose him for intimacy, but now he's had a little bit to drink. Exactly. So we know where this is going. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now, one thing I think is important to notice too here is that Naomi mentioned do it where no one can see you and Ruth waited till there was no one around to go and approach him. So there is an element of secrecy here because she's a foreign woman and any woman who is just going into men's bedrooms after they're drunk in the middle of the night looking good is suspicious. But as a foreigner, she's already especially vulnerable. And so doing this secretly is important because there are other things that are happening in the background that she doesn't want to ruin. Propriety is always a central issue in courtship, in sexuality, in terms of protecting the honor of women or the honor of, in this case, a father figure boss. All of these tensions are at play here. Even now, no one wants to talk about being rejected. People don't want to open themselves up to another person, be rejected, and then have that publicly put on display. They don't want the details of their sexual lives exposed. They don't want other people to make assumptions about motivations or something like that. Or to be put in a position of weakness or even in our culture, a position of shame. Right. There is still shame associated with sexuality. So, I mean, it's really not a stretch even for the modern Westerner to understand why propriety is in order here. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid for you are a close relative. Spreading your covering is an expression for protecting or even marrying. This is used in Ezekiel 16 when exactly. the, when the girl becomes old enough, the Lord then marries her, the girl Israel when she's old enough, then spreads his clothing over her and then he marries her. This is really hard for people to understand in our culture because we are very uncomfortable with authority, let alone authority and power exercised by a male authority figure. A Westerner hearing this is going to be suspicious of Boaz right out of the gate because we're now programmed to be suspicious. But he's fulfilling a social responsibility. This is not coercive sexuality. He didn't ask for it. She's asking, and it's not about sex. It's about the possibility of him taking on responsibility for her. As a husband. As a husband. It's covenantal. And actually, the point that was made earlier about the potential of a broken covenant when Elimelech left the land, this could be seen in a way as undoing that break with Bethlehem. And again, the irony, and this is the difficulty of these texts, and when people try to be too black and white, you end up with fundamentalism. The fact that leaving Bethlehem again was trying to escape 
the judgment of your true husband, the Lord, does not mean that there's a problem with the Moabites. This is really a difficult nuance for people to grasp. And as if to really rub that in your face, I caused you to stumble by starving you. You stumbled in the land of the Moabites. And then out of your stumbling, not only did I show you that you were not better than the Moabites, but I undid the damage by creating this union between a Judahite and a Moabitess. It's a strong endorsement of the foreigner who does the correct thing. Yes. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. He's saying you're not a harlot. Not only that, she is going after a man to marry that's not going to just be titillating for her, but someone who's going to help her mother-in-law because this way it keeps her mother-in-law's substance in the family by marrying somebody who is a relative first. She's being very proper in the way that she decides to marry someone. And this is why I think we have trouble in our marriages today because we don't understand what's happening here. I mean, who marries somebody for the sake of the good of their parents? But when you marry someone for the sake of the common good, if your priority is taking care of someone, supporting the community, taking care of your extended family, if that's your framework, you already, in the very first steps of this union, you've already laid the foundation for God to be the center of the household because that's what God does. He sustains the community. He takes care of all his children. Ruth is acting responsibly here. It's a big deal. And again, she's not a Judaite. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. So again, this is the question of propriety. It's so important to protect her honor. And now he's underscoring that her honor is intact. Her reputation was already exemplary. And he's not going to do anything to jeopardize that. Now, it is true. I am a close relative, however... There is a relative closer than I. So now, again, this really undermines this idea of any indication of exploitation because this guy who has taken care of this woman and provided for her and who has in the text expressed his admiration for her is now saying, I may not have a right here. Let me first be correct according to the house rule in the land of Judah. Because if there is a closer relative, then no matter what happens, I can't dishonor him or disenfranchise him. It's really important how careful and correct he's being. Yeah, it seems very consistent in that by saying this, he's not only caring for Ruth, but caring for Naomi as well. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. Redeeming meaning to be the one who has a right to the inheritance, that has the right to possess the inheritance. And that's what they're trying to sort out here. And Boaz, rather than taking what he can, he's waiting to make sure that he is the correct one who is the actual redeemer here in the situation. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he is making sure that she has an out. Because if there is another that she should be with, in other words, if it is expedient and correct 
for the life of the household, the life of the clan, the life of the community, that she be with another, we don't want to do anything to jeopardize her excellent standing, especially because she's still vulnerable in our community. Yeah, no, if she looks like a whore, then if trying to marry somebody else, she's going to lose the opportunity, and and then she's lost her cause. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Again, he's fulfilling his duty toward the community, toward the household. And in doing so, he's supporting the widow and the orphan. He is upholding the honor of a woman and a foreigner. He is taking responsibility for the financial duties of Elimelech, even though it's not yet clear that that is truly his duty. It could also be seen as a kind of advanced dowry. Now, you might say, well, then he wants something, but that's not how it functions here. I think because we tend to break everything down in capitalistic terms, we assume that these types of exchanges are somehow motivated by greed or selfishness. But they're not. I mean, this is social welfare under the Torah. And if we think about this in the broader context of the Bible, in the Septuagint canon, Ruth falls right after the book of Judges. And at the end of the book of Judges, what do we have? We have the problem of the Levite bringing his concubine and the town mistreating her, killing her, raping her to death, most probably, and then a war starting as a result. So we have a lack of hospitality to the Levite, and to his concubine, and then the concubine is killed as a result. And that's at the end of Judges. Now we have the book of Ruth, where Boaz is correct in every step of the way, how he takes care of the foreigner, he takes care of the widow, he takes care of the orphan, and even gives above and beyond, saying, I'm not going to let you leave empty-handed. Every major religion places high importance on hospitality. If we don't place enough focus on the theme of hospitality in this book, I think we're going to miss one of the major points. The fact that Boaz is so good about hospitality in the eyes of the ancient world puts him on a level higher than other people because this is a major action that a human being takes, is the action of hospitality. Father Paul Tarazi in his commentary on Genesis argues, I think convincingly, that Ultimately, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for inhospitality. We tend to think of it in terms of immorality because that is our focus for a number of reasons, cultural and psychological. But in context of Genesis, hospitality with foreigners is a central issue. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. So what you have here are two wise elders, Boaz who's the senior male, and Naomi, who's the wise widow. Boaz acting correctly and giving good counsel that may be at his expense if he misses out on marrying Ruth. Because although it's his duty to support her, it's clear that he admires her. And Naomi counseling her daughter how to approach this man in courtship and also how to act now that the ball is really in the court of Boaz. Right, and we also know that Boaz is not a young man because he said, you didn't go after young men. 
it's continuing to show the honor of this man. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. And this That's is what a good he, point. And this is what he promised to her that tomorrow we're going to settle this. And Naomi says he will settle it today. And the fact that he will not rest before he settles the matter, the fact that he promises to her that he's going to settle the matter, underscores again his virtue. There is nothing, nothing like a reliable male authority figure in the community. Just like there's nothing as beautiful as a reliable female authority figure. It's not about gender versus gender. There's something beautiful about Boaz acting correctly, and there's something beautiful about Naomi acting wisely. One thing beautiful is how she comes and says, I'm your servant. Ruth says this to Boaz, knowing that he's the powerful elder man in this household. And the first thing he says is, don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. She makes herself completely vulnerable to him, and he underscores that he will not violate the trust that she has put in him. And I cannot stress this last point enough, and it's probably a good place to end this episode today, Richard. We are not talking about ontology in Scripture. We are always talking about function. It's about modes of behavior, which means that it is possible for a human being to act from a position of strength and function in a godly manner so long as the strength is coming from God's commandment and the authority exercised is the authority of the commandment. And Boaz doesn't do anything in chapter 2 or 3 that isn't governed by the way God has instructed him to act. Taking care of the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. This is so hard for people to understand. But this was key for the Pauline school in the New Testament because they looked at the Roman household and they said, look, the Roman household works because the Romans are tribal and they understand the function of authority and power. We just have to transfer that authority from the ego of the paterfamilias to the commandment of God. But in order for the household to function, the paterfamilias still needs to be a paterfamilias. This, I think, will always make it difficult for modern readers who accept the ontological categories of good and bad, the ontological categories of gender or identity. When you're stuck in that philosophical quagmire, you'll never understand how a fallen human being can manifest the presence of the Almighty God even though he's a fallen human being. I don't know how else to say it, Richard. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.